So you've made it almost to the end of your first day. You made it to the Dharma talk. And, you know, I was talking with the other teachers and managers, uh, and we were talking at tea about how much um, appreciation and acknowledgement we felt for, you know, how much everyone's done today. You know, we came here and you, you didn't go home. <laughs> and sat and walked through, you know, everybody's experience was different. You know, it was interesting during the group interviews to hear, you know, some people, but, you know, maybe not having such a hard time, but many people dealing with sleepiness, restlessness, these achy bodies, maybe some challenging, um, you know, emotional things coming up, uh, some people coming in with some quite challenging situations in life that they come in that are coming up, just all the things, and then to, to really hang in there and work with, be present with all this to the best we can, um, you know, it, it's, um, it's not such easy work. And some of you may have come in, you know, if it's your first retreat, wondering, well, let's see, I've done a half day before, but, or can I do a whole day or four or five days? And you did. So I just first want to just offer a lot of um, acknowledgement and appreciation. And I hope you will also for yourself. Hope you will for yourself. Most of us come to meditation, Dharma practice, wanting in some way or another to improve our lives, improve our situations, maybe to make things better in some way. Um, you know, our stories, our situations are different, our intentions and motivations will be different. But I think for all of us, you know, in some way or another, we're looking for more happiness, more peace. Maybe you had some idea of, you know, come meditate, get some bliss, um, less stress, less suffering. That would be true for all of us. And the Buddha taught this path, which is said to lead to, uh, and it's described in many ways, the highest happiness. There's all these different adjectives that are used. The highest peace, um, freedom, liberation. You know, pick the your favorite word, enlightenment, um, realization of the highest truth. You know, there's different ways it's talked about. Now, the Buddha said he did not create the path. He, he said he discovered an ancient path. And he used this beautiful image I liked, uh, I like a lot of, it's as if someone uh, in the jungle and discovered just faint, very faint traces of of a forgotten, a overgrown, old, ancient path. And they were able to follow it back and came to this city that long ago had been abandoned and overgrown, but it was a beautiful city. And then goes back and tells the king and queen, and they have the pathway cleared, and now people can come and um, clear out the city, and now people can live there and enjoy this beautiful, uh, this beautiful place. Um, so this is this path now that the Buddha discovered that we can all uh, practice and walk, and that's what we are doing here t today.
So I want to talk a little about that more. This is a path, it's called a path that leads to the end of suffering. And so we come here to, to practice this path. You may or may not have, may or not, or may not have been conscious for you or, or, or something that was a conscious intention. But we come here to practice this path leading to the end of suffering, to meditate. Um, and so, you know, take a moment. I mentioned earlier, just a few minutes ago, look at what your experience has been today. Right? And it's really amazing to me that we come to this place, this beautiful center, in this beautiful setting, uh, they feed us. You know, rooms are pretty nice, I think. Beautiful hall. Um, it's pretty quiet. Hasn't been, you know, real hot or real cold. It's beautiful. And all we have to do, you don't even have, you don't have to make anything happen. All you have to do is sit there and just be mindfully aware of whatever is happening. Nobody's bothering, well, it may feel like people are bothering you, but, you know, everybody's in their own space, right? And we see how hard it is just to do that, just to sit here and be. It's not an easy thing. So we may ask ourselves, you know, what does sitting here with you know, with our breath and these achy bodies and these emotions and all these difficulties that can come up, our minds that are just out of control. What has that got to do with realizing this path, you know, realizing this highest truth and, these, uh, that the, um, and this end of suffering that the Buddha taught? If we want freedom, we have to come to understand what is it that keeps us from being free, right? If we want to understand, if we want to get happiness, we need to understand, well, what is it that stops us from being happy, right? If we want to get free of our suffering, we have to understand our suffering. How is it that we come to understand anything? You have to come to know it. You have to come to experience it, right? We want to understand suffering, but none of us want to suffer. Right? Now, that's not the whole story, right? We also, it's not just about uh, coming to understanding our suffering. You know, hopefully we also will come to understand places of incredible beauty in us and love and joy and all those pieces too. We come to see the whole picture of who we are uh, more and more clearly. Um, People often think that the Buddha, actually they view the Buddha and Buddhism as being kind of pessimistic. You know, we're always, you know, it's, it's, the Buddha's quoted as saying, life is suffering. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. That's actually not exactly accurate. Uh, but when you hear that, which is the sort of the common perception, well, gee, that doesn't, it's kind of a bummer, right? <laughs> So people can view the Buddha as being uh, pessimistic about life. But I would say that the Buddha is, um, I would say, neither a pessimist nor an optimist. I wouldn't put either of those labels on. I think the Buddha was more of a realist. 
and he was simply asking us, each of us, to take a realistic, direct and deep look into ourselves, our hearts and minds, into the nature of reality, into the nature of the way things are. And then what we're being asked, and this might be a koan that we can hold, but I want to talk, this is where I want to get to a little later in the talk, is, is it possible to find a freedom? I'm using this word freedom. You can substitute in a happiness, a liberation, an enlightenment. You know. Is it possible to find a freedom in the midst of things as they are? Right? That's an interesting question. Right? And we start to look at well, what, what's the nature of freedom? What is it that makes us feel free? What is it that, that in any moment stops us from being free? Um, I'm involved in, um, I've been involved for many years in some prison Dharma work. In particular, there's two state prisons down at Soledad. Um, People often think of Soledad Prison as one, but actually there's two state, separate state prisons right there next to each other. And we've got a pretty active program down there. And one of the questions, you have to be a little careful because you know we're coming in and we're, quote, free. In other words, we're going to walk in and at the end of the day we're going to walk out. Those guys aren't. So it's a very interesting question to start to ask ourselves and to ask them, you know, is it possible, to, is this really true? Is it possible to find freedom in the midst of, is the potential there anyway, in the midst of any circumstances? And if so, is it possible to find freedom in prison? Right? And I will tell you that working with some of these men in prison, and off and on I've done this for a lot of years, most of the men in there, probably like most of us, you know, they're doing the best they can, struggling with their ups and downs. And then occasionally you run into people there who are some of the wisest, kindest, most enlightened people I've ever met in my life. Embodiments of compassion and wisdom. You know, who, and when you talk to them, and you know, they're human beings, and they have their struggles and everything, but have really found some deep place of, uh, of freedom, even in the midst of those circumstances. It's possible. And some of these guys, some of these prisons, you know, they're not places that you would want to hang out for very long. Okay. So the Buddha summarized his teaching by what's called the Four Noble Truths, which is really what this talk is about tonight. And some of you have heard the Four Noble Truths many times, and for some of you, it will be new. But don't worry, if you hang around the Dharma scene long enough, you'll hear the Four Noble Truths many, many times. Um, on, in, in a very profound way, all of the teachings are contained in these simple Four Noble Truths. Everything's there. And I'm going to uh, state them in just a moment, and they're, you know, just conceptually, they're very, very simple. I would say um, deceptively simple, or maybe you could say confoundingly simple. They're simple to understand, not necessarily so simple to uh, actualize or to live, and that's the 
uh, process that we are all engaging in. So let me just name the Four Noble Truths here, and then we'll, we'll um, spend a little time with each of them. The first is the truth, and I'm going to change the translation a little later, but for right now I'm going to say it's the, it's just the truth of suffering, that life contains suffering. This is the place where people think the Buddha said, life is suffering. We'll come back to that one. That's the first noble truth. It's, it's, it's at least an acknowledgement that there is stress, difficulty, disharmony, some kind of suffering in life that has that. The second noble truth then is pointing to that, that there is a cause, and it points to the cause of this suffering. Okay, right? And the third is that there is an ending of the suffering. There is an end of suffering. And then the fourth noble truth is the path leading to the end of suffering, which is the Noble Eightfold Path. We'll say a little bit about that. Um, it is interesting, again, it is sort of has a pessimistic tone. All it's talking about is suffering. Well, not really, because it does say that there is an ending of suffering, right? But it's talking about it kind of in a negative sense. There is a way you can reframe this. This is just me talking. I, it's not, this isn't the Buddha. It's, it's not the traditional language, but I think you could uh, reframe it in a way as there is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, there is happiness or freedom, and there is a path leading to freedom. I think you could, I don't know what the tra- if the traditionalists would approve of that, but um, I think you could do that. So let me read a quote here. Uh, from Zhuang Tzu, who was the second great Taoist master after Lao Tzu. I cannot tell if what the world considers happiness is happiness or not. All I know is that when I consider the way they go about attaining it, I see them carried away headlong, grim and obsessed, in the general onrush of the human herd, unable to stop themselves or to change their direction. All the while they claim to be just on the point of attaining happiness. I don't know about you, but I think he nailed me pretty good. Pretty good on that one. We have to come to know ourselves deeply and intimately. I used to think that meditation practice, when when I first started, it was about um, going out somewhere. I'm not sure where that somewhere was, but some transcendent experience. Uh, Before I was in the Buddhist world, um, I was in more of a uh, Hindu-oriented yoga world. I lived in a meditation ashram for a few years. there you were all trying to just, you know, attain some, you know, oneness and all these states, and it's great, right? And we can have those experiences, and in, and in Buddhist practice there are uh, meditative states that can be attained. Um, there's a whole range of different practices. But if we go looking for our freedom outside of ourselves, it's going to be incomplete in some way. It's going to be some taste of maybe something transcendent or 
freedom, but it, it, it can t- have a tendency to be disconnected from ourselves. Those deepest, highest truths are contained in us, and that's exactly what we're doing here in the Vipassana practice. It's not so much about getting away from or going out. It's about getting here, but really getting here, maybe in a way that we never have before. Right? Think about what it is we're doing here. We sit down or whatever your posture is. We close our eyes. You, can, of course, can practice with your eyes open. We're developing... We talk about developing the mindfulness right along with it. We haven't talked about it much, but um, it also is, whether you realize it or not, also helping to cultivate some ability to settle down, maybe a little concentration, a little peace, that, that, that will continue to develop. It may not have felt that way to you today, but that's also happening. And then we're taking that power of mind and we're, we're shining the, that light of awareness inward into our own mind-body process. So it's a journey deep, within to really come to see what's the true nature of our own being. So what is it we see when we start to look? I want to talk about that briefly. One of the things we start to see, and you may not have actually noticed this, but you may want to start to pay attention a little bit, we start to see that things aren't as fixed and permanent as we thought. In fact, everything's changing all the time. That would be a, that's a huge topic, it would be a whole talk in itself. So I just want to say a little bit about it. Think back on your day today. Think of maybe, you may have had more than one of these, but what was like maybe the roughest it got for you today? The worst. Where's that experience now? unless you happen to still be in it in this moment, and then the the, the analogy kind of, I mean, the the image breaks down. Where is it now? Think of your best moment, if you had some. I hope you did. Maybe it was enjoying the meal, or finally getting to take a nap, or a little walk, or seeing the deer. Where is it now? It's gone. When we're in those experiences, we don't remember that, right? We think... This knee pain's going to last forever. We don't notice it. But everything's changing, and we start to come to see this ever more deeply. So the whole range and flow of our experience changes. Our bodies, we start to see this more. And this is, a, is an important place where we start to look. You may not have noticed that much change in your body through the day. Certainly the experience of being in the body changes a lot as the sensations come and go. But even over a lifetime, um, right? Pretty obvious. Bodies don't last forever. I was just helping my daughter move um, a couple of weeks ago, and as she was unpacking, she pulled out a picture of me about 20 years ago. And I had hair. <laughs> and it was dark. <laughs> and I had a young, pretty young-looking face. And I happened to be standing in front of a one of these, what is it, full-length mirrors on a door, I looked at it and I looked and I thought, who's this old guy? Where did my youth go? Where'd it go? 
I don't know, but it is gone. <laughs> Let's just be honest about that one. <laughs> right? I remember um, I used to be a, a very active rock climber when I was young. For a lot of years, I was really interested. I was a pretty decent climber. I've been up on these multi-day climbs in Yosemite. And I was a, in my day, I was a, I was a pretty, pretty good climber. And I remember once at the base of a climber getting ready to do it, I was looking around, looking up, looking around, and I said to my climbing partner, I said, you know, isn't it interesting? I don't see any old people here. And he goes, yeah, yeah, and we were kind of talking. I said to him, that's not going to be me. <laughs> I know. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep it up every day. I'm going to just, every you know, I'm not going to lose it. I'm going to keep, um, uh, stay in shape. And, you know, well, you know, the body, it didn't ask me my opinion. It just went right ahead and just did whatever it wanted to do. So, sure enough, um, you know, places that used to heal up quickly, now all of a sudden I start pulling a tendon and it doesn't heal anymore. You know, I'm kind of achy. I don't have the energy. And, you know, I don't know, maybe I lost all my testosterone because I don't really even have the motivation, right? So, you know, it just changed. <laughs> right? And then I'll just give you one last one and we'll move off the body here, although this is such an important topic. Is, um, you won't be able to see that in the back, but maybe in the front. You, you see that spot on my arm right there? You see that? See that? <laughs> see that? About seven or eight years ago, that wasn't there. So it started coming in a little more dark, and I thought, well, you know, what's that? Well, maybe I should get it checked out. I don't know. It could have been a skin cancer or something. So I went to the dermatologist, and he, he, um, he gave it some technical name, blah, blah, blah. I go, well, it's an age spot. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I thought, age spot? <laughs> I'm not feeling better here. <laughs> and now they're starting to pop out little faint ones. She's, I'm not going to get any sympathy over there. They're popping out. And I actually thought at one point, well, don't they have like a zap them off with a laser or something? And then I kind of woke up. I just wait a minute. No, I'm not zapping those off with a laser. That's my teacher. That's my teacher. And it's saying, Richard, right? What's going to happen? The body doesn't stay young. It's going to grow old. It's going to get sick. And then the big one, it's going to die. Right? So we hear these things. This is some of the things. This is why it can see. Now, the Buddha's not trying to be morose or you know, bum us out or, or be pessimistic. This isn't anything going wrong. Nothing's going wrong. It's just what happens. It's not bad. It's just what happens. So we start to see these things more and more and more. Our moment-by-moment moment experience, rising, passing away, our um, looking over the course of days, months, years, lifetimes. There's nothing there, really, that we can hold on to. We still try, right? We're clinging, and I'll say a little more about that in a minute, but we start to see, see this more. Right? This leads to the first noble truth which I, I translate it as life is suffering. Now, it turns out that the word suffering is actually a poor translation of a, a Pali word. 
Um, now, it's not necessary to learn all these words in the Pali language. Some people might be interested, some might be a little averse to it, so it's not a big deal. But there's a few words that probably are good. Dharma, the Dhamma in the Pali, Dharma in the Sanskrit. Um, this is one of those words that you, you may want to keep in mind. It's dukkha. D-U-K-K-H-A. It's dukkha. Uh, etymologically, it has the meaning of a, of a wheel, of a cart that's out of kilter. It's, it's off balance there. So what happens when the wheel's off? It's a bumpy ride. Right? That's dukkha. Right? Look into our own lives. What's true? Life's full of ups and downs. Right? Depending on what you're dealing with, it, you may be going through a time in life where it feels like a lot of more of the good stuff. Or, depending on what you're dealing with, you may not, it may be a lot more of the difficult, challenging, really unpleasant, depending on what's happening for each of us. But in general, I hope all of us, we certainly all know suffering. We're all, even if we really are all fellow sufferers together here. Now, hopefully we're also all fellow knowers of happiness and joy and that too. Some of us having more of one than another. You know, really, we don't need the Buddha to tell us anything about suffering. We know all about it. We're experts. What we're not experts on is what to do about it. That's where maybe we could use a little help. So if we were going to pick, if you go look in the Pali English Dictionary, the word dukkha, and it's a big book, it's one of these like 11 by 14, or I don't know, it's a big book. And small font, I think maybe 10 point font or something. The, the definition of dukkha is about two or three pages. There's actually no single word that it fully um, uh, captures the meaning. So if you had to pick one word, I have two words that, um, that I would throw out. One is unreliable, that life is unreliable or that it has an unsatisfactory quality to it. Now certainly that includes suffering, but actually it turns out that we're also including even all the good stuff, getting what we want, happiness, pleasure, that's considered dukkha too. But why? Because of what we were just talking about, impermanence. It doesn't mean we, do, we can't have happiness. And the Buddha talked about it. I just said earlier when I started the talk, some of the ways that enlightenment, this word nirvana in Sanskrit or nibbana in Pali, that final highest attainment, if you will, or realization, is often talked about as being the um, highest happiness, highest bliss, highest joy. So there's, you know, it, that's... Um, you know, it's not saying don't feel pleasant sensations, don't have that in your life. It's just saying, but we want to be aware of the inherent limitations there. That's all. So I'm going to come back to that a little more but in just a minute to talk about that a little more. There's a second part of, to the first noble truth. It's not just that to say life is dukkha. The reason we suffer is because of clinging, trying to hold on. So if I'm clinging and identified and holding on to a young body, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> I'm either suffering or I'm 
planting the seeds of potential future suffering. Now, let's face it. Is there, is there anyone here who's free, completely free of clinging and identification to the body? No. I'm assuming if you are, I would very much appreciate if I could have a private uh, session, uh, interview with you later. <laughs> but for the rest of us, no. So it's not criticizing us or saying there's something wrong with us. It's just pointing to what it is to be a human being, right? That this clinging is in there. Our mind, that's, it, our, it's deeply habituated and conditioned in us. So we just want to start to come to know that and recognize that and see the places where we do caught, get caught up in grasping and clinging to things that are bound to change. And maybe by seeing that more, the knots of that clinging can start to loosen a little bit. It's not the unsatisfactory nature of things that's the problem. It's the clinging, right? If you're at peace with an aging body, no suffering. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean unpleasant's going to, you know, magically transmute into pleasant now that you've seen its, you know, deeper reality of unpleasant. No, unpleasant's unpleasant. We just don't make a problem about it. Which is part of what we're doing here when we practice sitting, learning how to be with, say, an achy knee. It's just mind training. There's something unpleasant. We, can we find the freedom there in that moment? Okay, so this first noble truth that there is this dukkha that's intimately connected with clinging. Second noble truth is the cause of this clinging and this dukkha is, now this is another mistranslation, so first I'll give you the, the translation I don't like, is desire. See, Buddhism gets a bad rap due to a mistranslation of a Pali word. People think that the Buddha said desire is bad. Not true. And so we're supposed to just get rid of all desires and just be, I, I don't know what would be, numb or I don't know what would you be. That's not what the Buddha said. He used a, uh, a specific term in Pali is tanha. Tanha means thirst. The second noble truth, it's craving. The cause of our clinging is craving, which means it's, it's, it's the craving for more having to have, which conditions the mind to cling more um, pleasant experience, and the flip side of it is, get this awful, unpleasant experience away from me. That's what he's talking about. The Buddha, if you look back in the old um, suttas, which are the, um, the discourses that have been preserved back from the time of the Buddha, there's lots of places in there where the Buddha was strongly encouraging people to rouse effort and energy and zeal and desire for, for the Dharma, for cultivating wholesome states. So, you know, it, it, clearly he wasn't saying any form of desire. You know, if you didn't have a desire to do this practice, well, you wouldn't do it. So it's not talking about any desire. It's when desire gets out of hand. Right? So a perfect example is I was scheduled to go on a retreat with... Um, um, a Burmese master that um, Robert spent a lot of time with uh, in Burma, and his name is, uh, is Sayadaw Pawak. He was uh, taught for two months in, in, at a center on the East Coast this last spring, 
and that was a lottery retreat. I got in. I was really looking forward to this retreat, big time, big time. And, and I was willing to push away a lot of things in life to make it happen, but life circumstances went in a certain way, and it was clear I had to let go of the retreat. It was just obvious. So I did go through a little suffering around it, and then finally, I just let it go. And I noticed how I went through this, you know, it was just there it was in action. I can see the first noble truth, acting out, why? Second noble truth, craving, clinging, suffering. It was great. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's not having the experience of being Powak with Powak. It's the, the liberation through non-clinging. Let it go. I was at peace. Took a little doing, I, I admit. It had to hit me a few times over the head, but then suffered enough and I learned. Right. It's the craving for pleasant experiences and the craving which for which getting rid of unpleasant, which is an aversion to unpleasant. That's the problem. How is it that all of us as human beings are seeking our happiness? It's a rhetorical question you don't need to answer. Because I know the answer for all of us. And I hope it won't sound arrogant of me to assume, as human beings, we spend our whole lives trying to get more pleasant experiences. In other words, to get more of what we want. And to have less unpleasant experiences, less of what we don't want. Isn't that what, it's not, aren't we all doing that? Anybody here trying to get less of what you want and more of what you don't want? No, it's, it's even silly to say it like that. It's just part of being a living, living being, right? That's what we do. And that's not a, I don't think that's a wrong thing. Let me read a quote here from, this is from Hari Das. He is a teacher. I think he's still alive. He actually used to be my teacher back in the early 70s in more of in the Hindu kind of yoga world down in Santa Cruz. So he's using language that's not really Buddhist language, but I think it's, it's very interesting. He says, we live our entire existence from this point of view, seeking those things, situations, and people that make us happy, and avoiding those things that make us unhappy. But even when conditions seem ideal to us, there is always that nagging certainty somewhere in our minds that the situation will eventually change that the security and happiness of the moment will ultimately be lost. In truth, we are never totally at peace. There was always something to be anxious about. Ordinary life is really a constant dilemma. He goes on to say, remember, these are all teachings that you can't stop there because that's you're in the suffering. Right? This is a teaching that goes path that leads to the end of suffering. He goes on to say that our spiritual practice means learning how to live life as free, conscious, and loving beings instead of from the point of view of dilemma. Now, since I have not personally reached the end of the path, I don't know what that is. So um, I, can't, uh, I can't teach the end of the path. I don't know the end of the path. So I'm like all of you, you know, we're on the path, we're swimming in the ocean of the Dharma. 
So I don't know about that word enlightenment, but you know what? I can sign up for learning how to live life as free as a free, conscious, and loving being instead of from the point of view of dilemma. It's natural to seek experience, happiness and experience. All beings do it. Right? I don't think we're going to stop doing that. Right? I don't think we have to stop doing it. We, just have, we don't have to throw everything away. We just have to add in this one little piece. It's not much of anything, really. One little thing. That is... If our only strategy for happiness is having to have life look some way and definitely not look certain other ways, then our well-being is completely bound up in circumstances, external circumstances. And because of what we were talking about early, impermanence, dukkha, um, things aren't completely within our control. Just look to your own experience here on retreat. Aren't you doing everything you can to not suffer today? I mean, really. And it's not so easy to do. If you could just not suffer today, wouldn't you? Of course you would. If your well-being today was completely tied to, bound up in, in having certain experiences and not having others, well, sometimes you'll get what you want. It's okay, but sometimes you're kind of in trouble. I think what the Buddha is asking us to do is to start making a little shift here. And rather than our well-being being tied up in the nature of the experience, it's more what is the relationship we're having with whatever experience we're having. That's the shift we can start making. Right? In spite of how hard we try, in the end, you get what you get. So it all comes down to what are you going to do with you get what you get. It doesn't mean you can't still try to change your circumstances. Right? And so this teaching is pointing towards what's called an unconditional happiness. What we've just been talking about is what's called a conditional happiness. It's conditioned, it's dependent upon circumstances. The third noble truth, this end of suffering, end of dukkha that the Buddha was talking about, is it's an unconditioned or unconditional happiness because it's not dependent so much on, and ultimately, I suppose, not at all if, we can, if we're Buddhas, but, it's, but for any of us, it's not so much dependent on the circumstances. Um, it's, and, and, and it's that place of freedom that uh, potentially can be found in any circumstances. It's, it stands, it's changing our relationship uh, with, our experience, with our experience. My practice went through a huge shift, and I'm not always in that place, but I definitely, it shifted for me. It took a lot of years to get to the point where I was just as interested in my suffering as I was in my bliss. It's a big shift. I'm not making any big claims. You know, I still get caught up and suffer at times, sure. But when we start to make that kind of shift, um, um, it's, 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 it just changes everything. So I can think of many sits I've had, um, and if, if for those of you who are new, keep practicing long enough, you'll definitely can get in some very pleasant meditative states that can come. It feels great. 
when those come. And I can think of lots of times, you know, the bell rings and, oh, I'm just kind of, I'm peaceful, I'm kind of blissful, all, all these great experiences. And I think, you know, I, I think I'll just keep sitting for a while longer. I'm not going to get up yet. Um, just kind of stay with it. I haven't had that many experiences when, you know, the body hurts, the mind's going crazy, I'm sleepy, I'm obsessing, and the bell rings, and I say, you know, I think I'll just just stay here and, and, and for a while with this and come to know it's, you know, you know, investigate deeply the nature of my suffering. No, it's like, you know, when's the bell going to ring? Get me out of here. We can start, even if it's a little bit, to start taking an interest and seeing, just like I was talking about those age spots as being teachers. Each moment when we're sitting, we can start to make a shift. What's teaching me here? Sometimes the teaching might just be, this is too much for me and I got to get up. All right. Sometimes it's like, okay, you know, wow, it gets a little achy in the knee. Or, you know, my, my, my neighbor's wrestling around a little bit. And I can't take it. And I have all this aversion coming up. And we start to notice how, um, you know, there are places where we can start to work with these and start to notice how our equanimity and our peace of mind gets rattled by things. You know? And so that question comes up, you know, can I find the freedom in this moment? And in this moment, right? And in this moment. So we have first noble truth that there is dukkha, intimately connected with uh, clinging. Second noble truth, uh, the cause is craving, not desire, craving. Third noble truth, there's an ending of this, which is uh, in the text is called nirvana uh, in uh, Sanskrit and nibbana in Pali. And the fourth noble truth is, is the path leading to the end of suffering, uh, which is called the Eightfold Path. And so um, I'm just going to quickly mention the, it, it just so you've heard it. Um, it's a whole you know, topic in itself. Don't worry if you don't remember all the pieces of it. It's, it's throughout all the Dharma books, or I can write it down for you if anybody wants. So don't worry about it too much. But basically, uh, this Eightfold Path is divided into these three sections. First section is called the Wisdom section, and it's just called Right View and Right Intention. And it's just basically think of it as, at least at the beginning part of our practice, of um, pointing ourselves generally in the right direction. So we don't have to be exactly on target, but you know, if I want to go north, basically I just want to make sure I'm not facing south. That's all. I can be, if I'm pointing you know, north-northwest or north-northeast, well, that's all right. I'm heading, in the, getting, heading the right direction. Just kind of think of it like that for now. There's a lot more that could be said about this right view and right intention. The second section, which is really connected with the precepts we took, it's, you, you could call it the morality section. And they just, it's just three pieces, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. It is just practicing learning 
to live and speak and act and be in ways that are wholesome, meaning uh, leading to less suffering and to more happiness for ourselves and others. And then the, there's the section, which is the meditation section, uh, right effort, right concentration, uh, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, and that's the meditation practice we're doing. So it's this path. I know that was quick, um, but uh, I just need to at least mention it since it's a talk on the Four Noble Truths, and I just don't want to go off into it all here. You're doing it all here, so it's covered. So now I just, as um, I want to end this talk to now bring this, what we've been talking about, back to our practice. How to practice, how do we start to incorporate uh, those into our practice? That was a lot of words, and we want to keep it real simple. And just like the Four Noble Truths, if you just list them out, as I said earlier, are conceptually simple. You know, what we need to do to bring to our practice is conceptually simple. And then we start to bump up against it and we start to see where you know, maybe, maybe in practice it gets sticky a little bit. And that's all right. That's part of our learning. So the first thing I want to say is, is that it should not surprise us that when we come here to a retreat, we have a day like you had today, whatever that was. Right? It shouldn't surprise us. Think about it. How do you spend, again, I don't know any of you. I know, there's a few people here I know a little bit, and there's no one here I know well. So I'm making, I realize I'm making some general statements. Right? So it may not perfectly fit for everyone. How do you live your life? What is it you spend most of your time doing? Probably most of us are, you know, we're involved in life. We have either our jobs, families, um, the things that interest us, just whatever just the stuff of life. There's nothing, it's not bad, it's just we're just doing life. Right? Most, so that's what maybe we get pretty good at. How much of the time are, have you, do you spend in your life really cultivating love, compassion, wisdom, uh, quieting your mind down? Maybe you do spend a lot, I don't know, but it's just, uh, uh, I want to be careful because I mean hopefully we do spend some time, but you know, um, learning to um, um, be still. You know? So we, then we come here and we notice that our minds aren't trained. That's all. It's nothing wrong. It's just like if you just start to go to work out at the gym, right? Well, you're not going to lift up whatever, you know, those big weights. You have to build up your muscles because your body's not trained. And so through practice, you can. It's the same thing here. So it shouldn't surprise us. So we don't need to make a problem about it. Right? So we need to learn how to start relaxing a little bit and not be in such a big struggle. And I think the balance point there is, is that we do want to make effort. And sometimes it feels like we're working quite hard, and, and, and that's appropriate sometimes. But at the same time, we want to have a relaxed uh, sense of ease. We don't want to get stressed out. We don't want to um, overstrive, and we don't want to create suffering while practicing this path leading to the end of suffering. Right? Right? So we want to start to notice those places when we can work hard. And there is a path of cultivation. Right? There's this eightfold path. And we are looking to um, strengthen our mindfulness, deepen our concentration. Right? So we are, in a way, uh, well, I want to be careful. It, it, it is kind of heading us in a direction. 
But right at the same time, and even more important, is resting and being and, and, and with things as they are now. That's really um, so that these qualities we're cultivating really aren't about so much getting us somewhere, but just uh, supports to enable us to be here, to be present with ourselves, right? Um, there's a story I love um, from Ajahn Chah. He uses an image of growing a chili bush. And he says, if you want to grow a chili bush, you know, our job is, you know, we prepare the soil, and you plant the seed, and you water it, and it makes sure it gets sunshine, and you protect it from insects and from the wind. And that's our part of the deal. How much or how fast or when it grows, that's not up to us. Right? It's not our business. Right? Nature knows and do it. We do our part of the bargain. He says, but what we do in our Dharma practice is uh, we want to plant a seed, have it grow, flower, and produce chilies all in one day. And I love it. He says, you know, you can't go stretching on the leaves trying to get them to grow. Right? So how can we apply that in our practice? The way I would say it is, what is our job here, our part of the bargain? Our part of the bargain is, is that we show up and we do the best we can. We do the best we can. Sometimes when we're judging ourselves, uh, we, have, we may not view how we're as being so great. But we're all here doing the best we can. If you could do it any better, wouldn't you? Yeah. Everyone here is sincere. You know, I was not just trying to make you feel good uh, at the beginning of the, uh, of the talk when I, when I was talking about really having some appreciation for really everyone here. So if the voice in your head is saying, well, no, that's not me. I don't believe that. I don't. We're all here doing the best we can. So let's relax. Work with the challenges the best we can not be so hard on ourselves, make the effort, know that we're doing the best we can, and then be at peace. I remember on, I was on a long retreat uh, a couple of years ago, and um, I, had, I knew better than this, but I fell into a trap. I had an image of how I thought it was, should go. I had had experiences before that where I'd gotten into certain meditative states, these kind of these, they call them absorption states you can get into, which really are wonderful. Uh, in about five or six weeks. That happened to me before, so I thought, this is going to be great. Five or six weeks, I'm going to be here. And then I had the whole thing in my mind mapped out, you know, and I'd have all these months. It was actually I was on a pretty long retreat, and all these insights are going to crack open and everything. So I'm there, first few months going by, no absorption states. I, I wasn't handling this very well. <laughs> it's been several months. I was really just suffering tremendously, worrying about how the practice was going. So I went to the teacher, and I was just, you know, crying and moaning and complaining. And and he kindly pointed out to me that the deeper tr I remember it's just word for word. He said the deeper truths are not realized through any particular experience or any particular meditative state 
but from the deeper, from the deeper level, levels of non-clinging to whatever state is arising. I loved it. And what I said back was something like, well, Joseph, yes, that's true, but, um, but uh, in order to realize that truth, I got to get whatever. So I proceeded to suffer for a while long. And eventually, I kind of did get it. And actually, through that letting go, then the things could crack open that needed to in its own way, in its own time. And now I've really come to have a lot of faith that things do, the Dharma knows you know, how and when to unfold. If we show up you know, as sincerely as we can be, and you know, there's no such thing as a perfectly pure motivation for any of us, but you just do the best you can. Right? All motivations are a mix. So you bring the best you can, you do the best you can, we've done our part. The Buddha advised us against the judging and comparing mind. There's a word called manas. You don't have to remember all these words, but it means conceit. And basically, if we think we're better than someone else, that's conceit. If we think we're less than someone else, it's conceit. Or if we think we're equal to. What he was trying to do is, it's not the normal way we think of the word conceit. He was trying to have a step out of that whole judging and comparing um, paradigm. Now, personally, I think we should listen. I mean, it was the Buddha, and we should listen to him. However, um, it's not so easy to stop that judging and comparing mind. So if we're going to judge ourselves anyway, I hope that you won't judge it by how good or bad you think you're doing it, whatever that is. Good or bad is not even a good word, but however you think it, you're doing it. But a much more deeply true measure is by your intention. That speaks much more deeply true about you. You would not be here, and you would not be doing this practice if you didn't have that real intention. I mean, what is it about this community that we've created? You know, we're here about one thing. We're trying to learn to free ourselves from suffering. I think that's some of the most important and profound work that we can do. You're here doing that. And to learn to live, I mean, the world needs this badly in a way that's, um, how did Haridas say it? As free, conscious, and loving beings instead of at the effect of dilemma, from the point of view of dilemma. That is what's more consciously true for every single person here. So if you're going to judge yourself and create some suffering, not so much about how good or bad you think you're doing it. And then finally, I want to leave you with one last image that I love. Some of you may have heard this because I quote it often, but it's one of my favorites. There is a lot of water imagery in the suttas. And one particular, and there's also a lot of use of the imagery of rivers and streams. And so one of the images is called the stream of the Dharma. There's this image called entering the stream. And the idea is when someone has fully entered the stream of the Dharma, they're so completely immersed in the Dharma, that there's only one, it only flows in one direction, and that's towards freedom. That nothing else is possible when you fully 
So I love that image, and I like to think of it as all of us um, are, you know, some of us are dipping our toe in the stream, we're walking up to the stream, we're splashing in it, we're all in that, engaged in the process of entering the stream. All engaged in that process. And so, what is true, what is profoundly true, is because of that, there's only one thing possible for all of us. And that is that we do, we are moving actively, practicing and moving in the direction of more happiness and more freedom. And it doesn't mean you won't have difficulties in life or that you won't ever suffer in life. I'm not saying that. But the stream of the Dharma flows only one way towards greater happiness and greater freedom. And here you are doing this hard work in this practice. And I hope that you can bring some inspiration for yourself about that and um, some acknowledgement of that in yourself and some appreciation of that in yourself. So let's just take a few moments to sit quietly.